Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. All right, if you picked up one of the folders, you should already have tonight's notes put in those. Uh, Lindsay, uh, everybody turn around. You see that lovely young lady back there who just told me not to do this? That's Lindsay, and she puts all these packets for us every single class, every week, all the time. Amazing, amazing. Well, she put week two in last week because I wasn't sure if week one's material would fill the hour, and so I thought, let's have it ready, and uh, if I get happy tonight and fly through this material, we have week three right up here in front of me, and we'll hand that out too. So uh, if you want week three's notes in advance, if we get to it or not, you can come up here tonight and pick one of those up on your way out. What I'd love for you to do right now is go to week two in your notes, don't look at week one, and get your little writing utensil ready because we're going to take a pop quiz. Okay? I just want to see retention. This is uh, the teacher in me that if all I do is talk for 70 minutes every Wednesday night and you don't remember anything, uh, we're not getting anywhere. And so it's very important and we find out if we know anything. Now, there's, it's not whether or not you go to, to heaven or hell, okay? So everybody just relax. It's about how quickly you get to heaven. We'll talk about that another time. All right, so how many books in the Bible? Don't, don't yell it out loud. I know some of you guys want to show off, and, but there's no ribbons. This isn't Sunday school. So just write down how many books are in your Bible. You can do it on the back of one of the sheets. Just an open space. Let's take a little quiz. If you weren't here last week, guess. And if you get it over someone who was, then we'll have a mock fest. All right? No pressure. Okay? How many books are in your Bible? How many authors are estimated to have written those books? And you can talk. You don't have to write it down. If you want to chat and compare notes and cause a family argument, we'll... See, because some of you don't realize how much I can see while talking on this stage... Oh, it's hilarious. I can tell you who fell asleep last week. I may not know their name, but I can tell you where they sat and how hard they fought. I really can. And I can tell you the ones who didn't fight at all. They just got comfortable and leaned back. And so if you ever wonder, are we paying attention? We do see what you don't. All right. How many years of history is covered? Just some key, key numbers if we're going to talk about the Bible. Okay, we'll stop right there. Let's review. How many books? How many authors? How many years of world history? 1,500. All right. How'd you do? Two out of three? Good, good. All right. Now, I have a correction. If you want to go to lesson one, I have a correction. It was pointed out to me uh, by Mr. Archer, and he was correct. I misspoke last week. It, under the section where it says the Old Testament was written between 1400 B.C. before Christ, and I told you 27, I, I listened to the tape. That should have been 427. I got in a hurry and misspoke, so it came across as 27, and that was on, that's a mistake I made, so I want to correct that up front. Last week, if you, were, if you were not with us, we talked about what is the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament, what constitutes this thing called the Bible, what is in, uh, in the in-between period between the Old Testament and New Testament? We talked about some of the world history. Uh, identified how, how the breakdown of uh, this all came together. And under early church authors, do you see that section there? It lists like the New Testament, the narrative stories, early history, letters to the early churches. 
Under early church authors, I left out the book of Jude. Okay, so you can add that to Hebrews and James. Okay, and it was mentioned last week, and I didn't have any takers, which doesn't upset me, but if you want, if you're not here a week and you want to get the filled-in notes, all you have to do is email me. Go to the website, under staff. They have an unfortunate picture of me. Just click it. It'll give you an email address. Email me. I'll send you the notes. I want you to, I want you to have this material. One of the things when I listened back to the tape last week, I got all happy and I jumped into my notes that I didn't tell you that I need to tell you for just integrity's sake is that 85% to 90% of this material is not original with me. I did not write this. I meant to say it last week. I had a group of college students at Central Michigan University who had no church background who came to me and said, we don't understand the Bible at all. It, that was a challenge for me. So I took three or four books like dummy, New Testament for Dummies and I took books like that and I began to take pieces of it and teaching of it and I put it together into this format. I've reshaped most of it, but the original source material is not my own. So I didn't, I didn't want anybody to think, wow, this is pretty amazing. Yeah, it is because I didn't do it. That's why it's good. I'm just using it as a teaching tool. Found it very effective for about four years with college students to walk them through this. So I did it in a small group environment, which I shared last week. And trying in this environment will be a little bit of a risk. Now, the risk is not that there are too many of us in this room. I don't want you to misunderstand. I'm going to say something provocative. The risk is that you think you know what's in the Bible. And the toughest person to teach is the person who thinks they already know. That's why we test to prove you don't. When I went to Bible college, I walked in with a class, a stunning class of 125 freshmen. It was a very small school. We walked in, and one of the first things we did on the first day of Bible college was take a Bible test. Okay? The highest score in my freshman incoming class was 36%. And these were people going into ministry. They gave us the test as when we graduated, and the highest score was 88%. We're all in process. So when I say I, you may not know the Bible the way you think you know the Bible, I'm not saying that because I think you're dumb or uninformed. I just think there's capacity to grow. So when I preach and I come out and say, we're going to talk about the story of the Good Samaritan, people give you what uh, one preacher called the knot of recognition. They go, oh, I know that story. And instantly there's a wall where if I don't meet your expectations with the telling or the facts of the story, you'll have a tendency to shut it down and say, well, I already knew that anyway. And that's a challenge for me when I open the Bible. So I want to be honest with you. When I'm studying a text, I could go, oh, I've got three sermons on this. That doesn't mean they're accurate. It just means I have three opinions or position papers I've written about a text. Make sense? So now that I got you wondering if you know anything about the Bible, you're exactly where I want you to be. Because tonight's topic is about Jesus. The most common mistake we make is, well, I know this stuff. So what I'd like you to do tonight is suspend your intelligence and open yourself up to some facts that the Bible is trying to teach you and me. And from that, let's see if we can't gain a better understanding. Because when we talk about Jesus, it is the most important person in all of Scripture, in all of history. And our understanding of it cannot be confined to the Sunday school stories, to the common things that we talk about in church. There has to be a depth to understand who Jesus is. See, in six years on this stage, I've told you story after story about my family. 
It's kind of funny the other day, had a conversation with someone and they said, <laughs> uh, I don't remember quite the context, or in fact right now I'm drawing a blank as to who the conversation was because I've talked to a lot of people. Oh, I know where it was. It was at a basketball game watching our little third and fourth graders play basketball. And I was sitting in the bleachers and a guy from our church said, do you have any brothers? And his wife said, don't you listen to his sermons? <laughs> okay, so having said that, I, which I thought was a great response, he doesn't and she did. So 50% success rate, that's all right for a preacher. But anyway, in these conversations, uh, she, she told me my brother's names. She said, you have a brother named Steve, Scott, and your little brother's named Eric. And I thought, wow, retention. That's not the most important thing I talk about on a Sunday. But the fact that she remembers my brother's names was interesting to me. So what I want you to be able to do is not just know my brother's names as a metaphor. I, I want you to know the person that you can speak directly to who Jesus is, not the facts you know about him. Now, my wife has never walked on this stage, and I think only God could get her to walk up on this stage. She just isn't going to do it. If you threaten to fire me, I mean, one time, I think it was Peter Buckley, one of our elders said, you know, we've never had Heather on stage. And I say, may God have mercy on your soul if you can get her up here. Because it'd be like trying to give a cat a bath. She's going to scratch her eyes out. But I've told you about my wife, and you know things about her, but you may not know her. What I want to talk to you about tonight is what the Bible does to introduce us to Jesus. But don't stop at the introduction. There is a supernatural moment where Jesus becomes more than something on a page. He actually becomes the person you engage with. And then the Bible becomes a fascinating insight to you, not him. Does that make sense? If it doesn't, maybe it will at the end of the night. Okay. All right, I talked too long and my, can... my tablet took a rest. All right, Jesus, the promised Savior. The fundamental question we asked at the very beginning, and Michael asked this in the introduction to the Mark series, which I thought was very timely, having no idea where I was going to be heading in, this, in these teachings. Who is Jesus anyway? And who is he actually? If you knew nothing about him, and if you've never done this, it will take a long time, but if you get bored with Bible study or you start to lose traction and wonder what the value of it is, I would encourage you to spend the next year doing this one thing. Read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and write down every insight into who Jesus was. Not what he did, not what he said, but what it tells you about him. Do you do that with your children? Some of you are fortunate enough to have grandchildren. You can tell by what they say where they're at in life right now, right? Have you ever had that moment where your child says something so stunning that you look at your spouse and you go, they need to go to bed early tonight? Because what they said revealed what? They're tired, they're ornery, or they want to pick a fight. There's been a few times with Braden and I, my, Heather will look at Braden, our youngest, and say, you better quit. And he'll go, why? And she'll go, look at your father right now. He's not responding. At which point Braden has learned in dealing with me that the calm is definitely before the storm. If I'm teasing back, it's fun. When I just shut down, she's like, Braden, run away, he will bite. So when you open Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and if you've never done this, I tell you, it's rich. Just take a pad of paper and say, Matthew chapter 1, what did I learn about him? Because, I'm going to use a weird metaphor for you, if you dated Jesus, weird term, like you dated your spouse, you'd find out a whole lot more about him than you already know. So how did you date? Spent time talked about whatever came up. Sometimes you talked about specific things you were interested in. You just pondered, how would they react under certain circumstances? What makes them laugh? 
What makes them angry? You know the Bible reveals all that about Jesus? And if the dating metaphor weirds you out, change it to your, your own. But truthfully, I got to know Heather when I isolated her from all of her friends and just got her to talk about what she was passionate about or what she disliked. And I remember one time I said, you know, I'm never going to ask you to marry me. So if a guy did ask you to marry him, you, what would be the worst way he would do that? And she started telling me, notes to self. And I just started noting, she doesn't like this, she doesn't like this, don't waste flowers on her. I had just learned all of these things. I was collecting data. When you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you do the same thing, you'll have an insight into who Jesus is, not just what he did or what he said. And I think that life, spiritual life comes to life when Jesus becomes more than someone on a page, a historical figure, okay? So there's a lot of, uh, if you weren't here last week, what I told you is I'm going to put a lot in here that we're never going to cover because I want you to have a tool in your hands when you walk out of here to say, I knew that, good, or I learned something tonight, or I'd never thought of that before. Um, Jesus claimed to be God. That, (laughs) I'm writing a sermon on that right now for a few weeks from now in Mark. That claim, C.S. Lewis says, makes him a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. There's no other option with this. He either lied to us, he was crazy, or he was exactly who he said he was. And when you do your research you need to find out which of those three he is because he's one of those three. And if we walk the street and ask people what they thought, there'd be a lot of people who wouldn't want to choose one of those. They'd like to say he was confused or he was just a good moral teacher. He was a good example. You can't have that. The stuff that we're going to talk about tonight separates him. You have to make a decision. And uh, just admitting he's Lord doesn't make him Lord. So off we go. Jesus in the Old Testament. There are hundreds of prophecies. Now, I'd like you to circle the word hundred there. This isn't one or two obscure quotes that could be applied to him and Abraham Lincoln. There are hundreds of prophecies that God gave throughout time. And what's beautiful about God's prophecies, in my estimation, is he will give a prophecy to encourage the people that hear it, but who may not experience it. For instance... I had a dream two nights ago. Uh, It was really weird. Uh, You don't care, but let me give you the example. I had a dream that I was in a plane that was about to crash. And I've always wondered in my head that if I was in a moment where I saw a car accident coming and I knew it was going to happen. You know how you have that moment when you stop too late and you realize, oh, I'm going to hit them. And then you have that delay until you do. That was my dream. And then I woke up and I just looked around. I thought, that's funny. I wasn't panicked or anything. And then I had a dream that just frightened me. I had a dream that the Chicago Cubs were in the World Series winning by 11 runs in the, in the ninth inning of the seventh game. Okay. Now, I think that was the word of the Lord saying to me, one day, Mark, one day. Now, whether I experience in my lifetime, it was a prophecy. One day, my Cubs will win, and when they get to the seventh game, they're going to own it. I may never live to see it, but I can find pleasure in knowing that God will answer my prayers. Make sense? What was a prophecy to Isaiah? Did Isaiah ever get to see it lived out? Isn't that taunting to say one day there's going to be a king who's going to set everything right, but you're not going to see it? It wasn't to the prophets. Their hearts were encouraged because they believed, according to the book of Romans and Hebrews, that they, even though they wouldn't receive it in their lifetime, they knew it was coming and everything would be made right. Hundreds of these promises of God that he was going to do something. In Hebrew, 
There's, these are words that we use, and I want us to use them well. The Hebrew word for anointed one is the word Messiah. You hear us talk about that. The Greek word for anointed one is, anyone? What's the Greek word for the anointed one? Christ. Okay? The word Christ. Now, my dad used to always correct us. Christ is not his last name. So to say it properly, and I don't want to be legalistic about this, but words mean things. When we call him Jesus Christ, the, the most proper way to say that is Jesus the Christ. Or, properly, Christ Jesus. Make sense? It's a title. Uh, I get weirded out when people call me Pastor Mark. I don't call you Electrician Bob. Okay? Now, I know that it's a sign of respect, especially in the Midwest here or in the central states. Everybody introduces me as their pastor, which cracks me up because in Michigan and northern Indiana, where I grew up and spent the majority of my life, it's never that way. In fact, I ask people not to introduce me by what I do for a living so that why I'm living that way matters more than my occupation. If you introduce me as a pastor, then people think I'm paid to be good. If you introduce me as your friend, I can introduce my faith. And I've shared a hundred times in here that there's no better place to share your faith than golf because someone will always fire a ball into the woods and blame Jesus and I get to correct them. It's awesome. It's a lot of joy in that. So, when we call him Christ Jesus, that's effective. But don't use that in a term outside of its meaning. Because when the word Christ was used, it meant that's him. This is the one we've been waiting for. This is the promised one, the anointed one. So whether they called him Messiah or Christ, that was a public profession of faith. There is only one person in this entire world I call dad. That relationship between him and me, can have, I can have that with no one else. He is my dad. Biologically, spiritually, socially, the guy's been there for me. He's my father. So terms matter. And it's easy to get caught up in a real lax understanding of the word Messiah in Christ. But understand, in the, in the New Testament, they never used that word without it being a public profession of who he was to them. It was a title. So the name Jesus really means Jesus the Anointed One, Jesus the Messiah. His name probably spoken to him, he would not have been called Jesus by the crowds. What would they have called him? Yeshua. And if he would have had a nickname, it was more likely to be Joshua, which meant salvation, than it would have been the anglicized Jesus. So when you travel in the Mideast, mid they will refer to him as Yeshua quite often. And if you ever hear any uh, Orthodox Jews who become Christians, without question, they will correct you to use Jesus. Now we're saying, oh, but I love the term. There's nothing wrong with it. I, I want you to get words matter, let's use proper terms, proper ways, okay? So if you walk through the hall and you say, I believe in Jesus, and you see me, don't go, oh, I mean Yeshua. No, that's, as long as you understand the difference between the terms and what that means. Let's talk about some of these prophecies and how they identify for us this guy. Remember, if you'd never heard of him before, here's what I want you to walk away with. He wasn't an accident. It wasn't a surprise he was here. The people that were surprised weren't paying attention. If you notice in many of Jesus' parables, what he would tell a story is, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it into our culture today. 
a father went away on a business trip and told his youngest son or his oldest son to make sure that when he came back the grass was cut, the garage was clean and that the groceries were bought. And that father spent three days away and he came back and on the fourth day he came back he found out the grass was not cut, the garage was unattended and there was no food in the house. How happy would that father be? That's most of Jesus' parables, isn't it? Master went away, he entrusted his servants with tasks, he left, he came back. Was he happy to find out that they had forgotten what he'd asked them to do or they weren't paying attention? It's his teaching. So the fact that Jesus was here should not have been a shock. In Isaiah 7, it predicts with amazing accuracy the birth of Jesus. Now does anybody want to guess? Oh, I guess I put it in my notes already. If you don't read ahead, how many years before would Isaiah pronounce the location he would be born? 700 years. With accuracy, Bethlehem was not a big town. Bethlehem wasn't as big as Orinogo. And so, by the word of God, inspired by him, he professed that this child that will save, this promised Cubs victory, would happen in the tiniest little insignificant town. Except Bethlehem really historically wasn't that insignificant. What else occurred there? Who else was born there of fame? Pardon? Somebody ventured a guess and then pulled it back. David. King David was born in Bethlehem. Isn't that intriguing? David being a foreshadow of the coming king. Uh, So, I don't know about you, but that would convince me enough in and of itself that there's some legitimacy to the prophecies, but there's one of them. So the first is that it speaks of the child of a virgin born without a human father. The second is that the child was to be named Emmanuel, which in Hebrew means, you guys should know this, God with us. If you came to Advent, any of the Advent services, one of the themes that Brad and the guys put in front of us, that he's, we're waiting for God to be with us and all that that means. The third is that Isaiah made this prophecy 700 years before Jesus was born. Okay? Second significant point about that Jesus' coming should not have been a surprise. Isaiah 9 makes it very clear that the Messiah is all God and all man. All God, all man. Now, here's where I take my biggest risk. Finding out if any of you remember anything I said Sunday morning. (laughs) Who's more frightened right now, me or you? When it says that Jesus was baptized in the Jordan and the voice of God spoke and the Holy Spirit descended and empowered Jesus, what was the next thing that Mark records? Matthew records it too, but what's the next thing that Mark records happened to Jesus? Pardon? Yeah, he, he went to the wilderness to be tempted. How and by what means did he go to the wilderness? Spirit led him? The the actual word is tossed him. The spirit took him and moved him. Maybe against his will, not against his will, but he wouldn't have gone there on his own. He was impelled, King James says, which is a Greek word that means cast and thrown. So he was taken from his glory moment and thrown in the wilderness. How can he be all God and all man? I'm sure. Did 
Ah, someone's been reading her Bible. There are two accounts of the baptism of Jesus, and one of them says only John and Jesus heard, and Mark doesn't include that in his account. So the question, I'm going to repeat it for people that are listening to the, the copy of it. Uh, the question was, did Jesus just hear it? John heard it, so it was public. And I believe that there's a wisdom to it being public to at least one person. Because if Jesus said he heard the voice of God and no one else did, what would they conclude? He's crazy. So it was public enough to have been heard. But there are many times that God spoke and people that, that God wasn't speaking to couldn't understand. It just sounded like thunder. So that's a, that's a real good question. How can he be all God and all man? Because that's in conflict, right? Because God can be anywhere at any time, but Jesus had a body. Jesus had to walk. Now, he could walk across water, but he didn't do that all the time. So let me ask a series of questions to make you uncomfortable. Because I want to pop this bubble of this robot Jesus who walked through life pre-programmed to do everything perfectly. Did Jesus ever get tired? Did he ever need sleep? Did he ever get hungry? If he had waited more than 40 days without food or water, would he have dehydrated and his body begin to break down? Doctors in the house, help me. Yeah, if he's human. Okay, why was, he, why was he tested for 40 days and the longest fast recorded in Scripture is 40 days? Do you know why? Because the doctors in the room will tell you that after you get to 40 days, the body begins to take apart its internal organs for sustenance. God knows the body. Those of you that work with brand new babies, uh, how many nurses are here? Okay, how, at what point in time do you circumcise a child in the United States today? Right after birth, right? What does the Bible teach? Eight days. Do you know that the American Medical Association has decided the best time to circumcise a young boy is at what day? Eight days. The whole healing process, the whole vulnerability process. So why do we do it? One or two days? Well, let's thank the Lord for insurance companies because <laughs> that's the truth behind it. But it's kind of interesting that science is confirming that the standards of God are good. They're right. So if Jesus got tired and he got sleepy and he was hungry and he could dehydrate and everything else and he could die, then how is he God? Well, let me pose this to you. This is where the Trinity comes into play. If I can enter some theology into, the, into your Bible. He had all of God's holiness and power. It was contained in a human body that had limitations. When his human limitations conflicted with his being God, what did he have to bridge the gap? The Holy Spirit. That's why you'll notice that in the movements of Jesus' life throughout the Gospels, the Holy Spirit is always there advising him, counseling him, and leading him. The same Holy Spirit promised to us in the book of Acts and what it offers us is demonstrated in the life of Jesus throughout the Gospels. So don't let your Jesus become an automated, pre-programmed robot who couldn't do wrong. Jesus had to make choices. I'm going to make you really uncomfortable, okay? And so the elders will probably scold me afterwards. So Clifford, carry on. Here we go. Think a cute little girl ever walked by Jesus and he went, wow. You're all like, can we move on? Can we just get back to the blanks? <laughs> now seriously, did you, do you have a Jesus who could look at a female and appreciate her beauty and be enticed by her even? Absolutely, because my Bible says that there is no temptation common to man that Jesus did not understand. Interesting. 
Did Jesus ever get angry or jealous? Did he ever have moments to stop and think, I'm God and that kid's got a better bike? (laughs) I don't want you to paint Jesus as petty, but if he's all man and he doesn't go through the same temptations we do to make life easier, then can he understand ours? Absolutely not. But it said he was tempted and always common to man, but he sinned not. The Holy Spirit's conviction, guidance, encouragement allowed the human Jesus to remain fully and holy, pure to God. Because if you have a Jesus, now this is a personal opinion, so I want to step away from the holy spot. If you have a personal Jesus who could not be tempted in some areas, you don't have the same one I read about. Now, did Jesus ever lose his cool? You know, there's some books, some of the books we talked about in the silent 400-year period of Scripture, they'll tell you that when Jesus was a child, he got mad, killed a bird, and raised it back to life. Some of those books we don't include. Like, eh, yeah, I don't think so. Okay, so, hang on a second. Maybe God's punishing me for bringing that up because it shut down my whole program and I have to start over. I think that's the holy way of saying get, move along, okay? My son would never do that. All right, so he's all God and all man. So what does Isaiah say about him according to the Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 passage? I want you to notice those three bullet points there. First is he is mighty God. Do you see that? What does mighty mean? Powerful. I don't know if... Most of you are, I'll just give you it. When I was a kid, one of my favorite Saturday morning TV shows, and I found out later my father's least favorite was Mighty Mouse. I'm an early, I get up early in the morning, always have from the time I was a little kid, and I can remember waiting for the television stations to come on. Some of us have memory of the television station going off, remember the national anthem, and then it went, heep, and that little light went away until it was over, and then he figured I'd better go to bed. Well, I loved waking up and having that screen, the test pattern, And then all of a sudden, Channel 16 in South Bend would come on, and Mighty Mouse would come on at 7 o'clock on Saturday mornings. Now, the reason I know my dad hated it was because he sang that operatic, Here I Come to Save the Day, and it was always too loud, and my father would come down, turn that down. Now, which is funny, because every time my son opens his iPad, I'm like, Brayden, for the love, we're taking you to a hearing specialist. Turn that thing down. Okay? Mighty. Now, why am I equating God to Mighty Mouse? Let me tell you this, because in Mighty Mouse, the whole juxtaposition of the character was he was a mouse. But he could, he could catch a skyscraper falling and set it upright. He could stop the earth from spinning backwards when an evil villain got a hold of it. He was mighty. Mighty means unlimited. When you have might, you have the ability to overcome. Don't mistake a mighty God. Don't, Isaiah uses that term specifically. Because Jesus would be sent to fix broken things. And he needed the might of God to do that. Just a few weeks in the Mark series, we're going to talk about his control of nature and how he demonstrated so subtly that the creator's here. Second, he's an everlasting father, a phrase that the Hebrews use which means eternal. And then the third dot, as a Messiah, he will reign on David's throne forever, which gives you the Bethlehem connection. Number three, Micah. So we're not just relying completely on Isaiah. Micah prophesies Bethlehem as the birthplace of the Messiah too, which is interesting. Not only 
the birth, but the birthplace as well, Micah 5.2. Skeptics of Jesus pose this question regularly. And if you were with us in the Corrective Lens series this fall, I posed this question from the floor to Michael and to uh, Chad. And that is one of the, the highest point of criticism is that people will say, we have made Jesus to be more than he actually is because he never said he was God. So if I came to you right now and said, turn your paper over, go to a blank spot, and give me the verse, the book, anywhere in the Bible where Jesus said he was God, how would you answer? Because it's not theoretical. I've had these conversations at Central Michigan University on campus with some very bright philosophy students who are saying, I've read the New Testament. At no point in time did Jesus say he was God. You've made him to be God. You've made him to be what you want him to be, but he never professed that. Okay, so I want to answer this criticism. It's quite common. You can find it in books like Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Um, Brad, help me. Who was the journalist in the Chicago Tribune who became a believer and he wrote all the apologetics books? Pardon? Yeah, Lee Strobel, thank you. You can pick up either one of those books. Evidence That Demands a Verdict or the books by Lee Strobel. He does it on the resurrection. He does it on the evidence of the Bible. Uh, he's written some pretty, book, uh, pretty good books. Philip Yancey is also an author, if you're intrigued, not just reading questions and, and you know, retorts, but if you're, if you're interested in reading along the lines of understanding more of the book we have and what it says about Jesus, I'd recommend those three authors right up front. So, in the Old Testament, some of the promises, and then what did Jesus tell us about himself? First of all, Jesus' listeners understood what he claimed to be doing. If you interpret the Bible through a 2015 lens... You're bringing a bias into it that's unfortunate and it will persuade you away from the original intention of Jesus' comments. So, what he claimed to be doing. John 5, 17. Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day and I too am working. For this reason the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So, in that verse... Did Jesus say, I'm God? Class? No. What did he infer? This wasn't a slight inference, like, I'm, lo- I'm a lot like God. This was a statement that said, my father's working and I'm working too. And his audience said, oh, did he just call himself God? When you look at the reason that they wanted to murder him, why did they want to murder him? What was the charge they brought against him before Pilate? Blasphemy. What, is it, what does it mean to blaspheme? to claim to be God or to negate the reality of God. In fact, we'll talk in a few weeks as well in the Mark series, what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Because you can, Jesus said, you can blaspheme me, but when you blaspheme the work of God, you just entered into a whole new domain. So his listeners understood. Two, Jesus uh, imitated God when he referred to himself as I am. Now John picked up on this. If you want to know what John was writing about, and next week, should you come back, we're going to look at all four Gospels. Who were they written to? When were they written? What difference does that make in what they were describing? If Mark's the first Gospel and John's the last Gospel, then isn't it funny that Luke and Matthew seem to have been taken Mark's writings and fleshed them out because of the timing of it? 
They used, it would be called primary source. Luke and Matthew have sections of what Mark talks about, but they increase the conversation, they increase the facts, they bring more eyewitness accounts in. John, however, wrote probably 30 years after uh, Mark did, or maybe 20 years after Mark did. And so John doesn't go into the same territory that Matthew, Mark, and Luke do because it's already been covered. John decides to write and say, this Jesus you've heard about, let it be no question who he was, he's God. Because seven different times in the Gospel of John, he records Jesus using the expression, I am. Where did that come from, I am? Where is it most famously found in your scriptures? Pardon? In, in Exodus, at the burning bush. What was Moses' question that, that day? If I, go before the, if I go before Pharaoh who thinks he's a god... And I tell him, my God says to let us go. He's going to ask, who's your God? And what was God's response? Tell him, I am. Which is a Hebrew expression that means the God who makes all things happen. That's just a simple translation of it. I am the God who makes things happen. I'm the God creator. I'm the God who's going to bring the ten plagues. I'm the God that's delivering Israel. I'm the God that created all of this. So when Jesus would drop the I am, all of a sudden, the audience would be like, he did not. Now, let me answer a fundamental question right now. Why didn't Jesus just come out, drop the hammer, and say, I'm him? There's a reason. It's not because he didn't want to. Why did he delay? It wasn't time. How did he know it wasn't time? Because he believed in the prophecies too. And he knew that it wasn't time because some of the prophecies about him had not occurred. And here's the other big thing for you. Jesus didn't pick the time. He waited for it. God picked the time. Remember when they said, how's this going to end? And he said, God hasn't revealed that to me or you. That's That's the humanity of Jesus. He could have known, but he chose to be in submission to the leading of the Holy Spirit from his Father. So when he said, I am... He was, he was giving them, it's kind of being cheeky. When he said, I am, he looked at the crowd and he winked. And they're like, oh, did he or, oh. After the seventh time, they're like, yeah, he did. It's, it's not even subtle now. He said, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. That would have been a very controversial statement to say to Jews. Before the granddaddy of our faith was born, I was there. He's equating himself with God without coming out and saying, I am God. Now, if you give the evidence that I'm presenting to you, which is just a sampling of the evidence, don't think that the skeptics are going to go, oh, you got me. What do they want to hear him say? I'm God. And there's no direct quote. Remember that the Bible is not trying to prove to you everything you want to know. The Bible's trying to grow your faith. And your faith will grow when you identify who Jesus is. And who he is becomes enough for you. The rest of it fills itself in down the line. Thirdly, Jesus' disciples identified his true identity to his pleasure. Uh, In Matthew 16, Jesus asked Peter that great question. 
who do you say that I am? And remember, they gave all the answers. Well, some people say you're this, some people say you're this, some people say you're this. And Jesus said, who do you say that I am? There have been moments in my life that I've been accused of lying. And there have been moments I've lied. So let's bring into reality here that I'm a human, under pressure, haven't told the whole truth, harbored facts, whatever protected me. Not proud of that, but that's the fact. But those few moments when I've been accused of lying and I haven't, if, if two or three of you knew me socially and you didn't believe me, that wouldn't bother nearly as much as if Heather didn't believe me or Alex didn't believe me or Braden didn't believe me because they know me. They know me in my best. They know me in my worst. They know me when I've lost my mind. They know me when I'm fairly rational. I would want in the most pressing moments of my life to look at my wife and say, do you believe that I'm telling you the truth? And to hear her say, I do because I know you and I know your heart. Even though I'm an, I can be an idiot, I'd want her to know, I can tell you're not lying to me. Now, if some stranger doesn't assess me properly, I can live with that. Evidence is I probably give them a reason to think I'm a fool. But people who know me well, do you trust my heart? Jesus said to his disciples, and notice the three that were primarily with him all the time. James, John, and Peter. And he said to them, you keep telling me what everybody else says. I need to ask you now, do you believe in what I'm showing you? That's why it's so powerful that Peter says, you are the Christ. Oh, let's stop over. Christ means what again? The anointed one. What does that really mean though? Chosen one. You're the one God's been talking about since Genesis 3.15. That I'm going to send one and you are going to crush the serpent's head and he's going to, and it's going to bite your heel. So he says, you are the one God promised, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. Which is really a fascinating expression. I don't have time to do it, and you wouldn't want me to, but we could take those last six words, that last clause in that verse, and we could get happy on that for about two hours. Did you discover Jesus, or did God reveal him to you? There's a lot of theology in that question. Because... Paul teaches that it's the conviction of the Holy Spirit that brings Jesus to our hearts and minds. So, think about it this way. Is there someone in your life that you love that doesn't know who the Lord is? And you've tried and tried and tried to convince them. You're going about it improperly. Pray that God convinces them and watch how they'll come to you for answers. Okay, I've used this example. My brother Stephen Scott raised in the same home, good guys, really good guys. They don't break the law. They, they, don't, they don't do dumb things. They just don't believe in Jesus. I mean, they believe in Jesus, but they don't know him. They don't care about him, demonstrated by the way they live their lives. They don't go to church. They don't invest in the kingdom. They, they're just good moral guys. So I've been praying for a number of years. I've shared this with you before, not because it makes me a hero, but I just want to encourage your hearts. Some of you are ready to give up on someone you love because you don't know what else to do. I pray this prayer every morning. Steve, Scott, and I move on. God and I have had a 30-year conversation. There's nothing new I can add today. I begged God, get their arms so far up, twisted behind their back, they yell, uncle. God's like, Mark, I got this. I know you love them and I know you care and I know God cares about them just as much. My prayer has been that God will get their attention, which is a dangerous prayer because God can get your attention with illness, with tragedy, and sometimes even with success. So 
I get a text from my brother Scott. Uh, first of this week, maybe last, maybe it was Friday. And Scott is going through a divorce. His wife decided she didn't want to be married and it's horrible and he's struggling. But first thing my brother did was went back to the default. As soon as his world started to fall apart, where did he head? Back to church. Headed right to church. Which, and we're all like, oh, don't, don't we say anything and ruin this. <laughs> he's a proud Christian boy. And I mean our last name, not like all of us. He said, don't, don't press with his pride. Let him go. And he get, I get this text message from, hey, little brother, I got a question. This fascinates me. I need to start tithing. Do I give 10% on all I make or should I wait until after I pay off the child support? (laughs) One step at a time, brother. One step at a time. I said, just get your butt in church and pay attention. And if you want to give to the church, you give what the Lord's laid on your heart. Don't worry about the numbers right now. You just invest in the kingdom. And he said, There's a, he said, I am so heartbroken, but God is doing such a good work that he said to me, I expect his wife, he said, I expect us to be back together one day. I said, don't use Jesus to fix your marriage. But I said, put yourself in his presence and he may fix your marriage. Make sense? So when Jesus looked at his disciples, what question did he ask, ask them? Who do you say that I am? And they said, you're God. And he said, you know, God taught you that I didn't. God revealed that to you. And I think that's the way we ought to pray evangelistically. God, would you do the work that I can't? Would you solve the problems I can't? Would you? I didn't want my brother to go through what he's going through. I hate it. But he's spiritually alive right now. And my prayer is not, well, I'm glad he got his. I'm going to pray for my sister-in-law, my ex-sister-in-law. I'm going to pray that she gets the same thing. Because at the end of the day, if they both give their lives to Christ, all the nonsense that's gone on before will just be the path God walked them down. So I just always tell people this for what it's worth. If you've got a Steve in your world, just pray the name. God's got the details. He cares about it more than you do. Just go with him every day saying, God, please, do what you've got to do. And that's a risky prayer. Fourthly, Jesus identified himself in a court of law. Now, I don't want you to get happy about the legality of that as much as in that court of law there was not faith. I don't always understand because I'm growing in my understanding of Scripture, and I may never. I don't always understand why Jesus would heal one lady and say, go tell people, and heal a demon and tell him to keep his mouth shut, or demon-possessed man, rather. I don't understand the timing of that. Now, I know a lot of it happened in the first year, and he didn't want large crowds because all they wanted was him to be a slot machine, right? They just wanted to put a quarter in him and get a prize. And that's what he wasn't interested in. Sometimes he said, don't tell anybody, and they did. Sometimes he said, tell people, and they didn't. So, there was a revealing process that Jesus went through that he sought, that he was interested in. But in Matthew chapter 26, the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, Would that have been binding to Jesus? Jesus, place your hand on the book you wrote (laughs) and make this vow. So I ask you this fundamental question. Would Jesus have given testimony that was inaccurate? Did he need that oath to make him tell the truth? It's in what chapter of what book? Matthew, it's right there, folks. 26, I know you're going, it's a stupid question, you already know the answer. I want you to process with me. In Matthew chapter 26, where are we at in the story? 
the last day. At this point in time, Jesus has to reveal who he is. And he's revealing it to who? Pilate? Who's he revealing it to? The high priest of what group of people? The Jews. The Romans weren't as skeptic. The Jews were. So under oath, tell us if you are the Christ, if you are the promised one, if you are the one God's been talking about since Genesis 3.15, the Son of God. Jesus replied what? Yes, it is as you say. Is that not a statement of who he is? Not according to our critics. And I'm not belittling our critics. What more do you need? Him to rip off his shirt and have a big S on his chest? He said, are you, are you the Messiah, the promised one? I think part of the reason we don't want to admit this is a statement is because we have neutered the word Messiah. We've taken away what his testimony was. How many presidents of the United States do we currently have in office? Okay, we call um, Jimmy Carter, we call him what? President. We call Bill Clinton what? Now be careful, president. Again, I was afraid I opened the door to that one and someone may jump through it, okay? We call George Bush what? Both of them, president. Who is the president of the United States right now? You can't have more than one. So when they said, are you the one, the one who comes from God and is God, his answer was, yeah, just like you said. That seems to me like a confession. Five, Jesus raised himself up in the resurrection. There is no preacher worth his salt who, who, <laughs> who, has, or who can avoid the resurrection here. Jesus promised it four different times in the Gospels. I'm going to do this in three days. I'm going to demonstrate to you who I am. He did it by raising people from the dead. He did it by curing the lepers. He, remember John was in prison? John the baptizer was in prison and John became discouraged and he sent his disciples to Jesus and he asked one question, are you the one who is to come or are we waiting for another? Why? Because Jesus was disappointing him and Jesus never answered his question. Okay? What did Jesus do? He just said to the disciples, follow me, healed blindness, healed a deaf guy, made a paralyzed dude walk, took a leper, healed him, raised somebody from the dead, and he said, go back and tell John what you've witnessed. Why would he do that to John? Because John knew what the Old Testament promised. And Jesus said, if I told you I was, would you believe it? If I show you who I am, would you believe it? So why was he resurrected from the dead? To prove to us that all the promises, all the oaths, all the confessions of other people were justified. So let's talk about Jesus in the New Testament. What does the New Testament do to take us where we want to go in following and finding out who this man is? Okay. So John the Apostle was an eyewitness. Did the resurrection happen? I want to show you that there's more than just uh, the facts of a preacher in 2015 here. In John 1, 1 through 3, excuse me, <clears throat> In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Verse 10. He was in the world, and through the world was made, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Oh. Verse 14. 
The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen the glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John wrote this yeah, somewhere in the mid-70s. The, like, the original 70s, not like the cool disco 70s. So he wrote this in the mid-70s. This would have been a period of time of 40-so years after Jesus. He writes this book, he lays it out there, and he says he came to show us he was God. He came to show us from what he did and how he did it and why he did it. He wrote his gospel, it says here, 50 years after he was crucified and raised from the dead. What was different 50 years after Jesus' resurrection? What was different? How was his audience different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke's? What happens every 40 years? There's a new generation, right? So this new generation was listening to an eyewitness. Now, when I was younger, if you would have said something that happened 40 years ago, I would have thought, well, yeah, but there's probably people who couldn't remember it clearly. And then I thought, oh, I can remember 40 years ago. Yeah. So 40 years ago would have been 1975. I can tell you what was on television. I can tell you the nights of the week what was on television. I can tell you in 1975, I quit being a Cub Scout because our Cub Scout meetings were on Tuesday nights and so was Happy Days. <laughs> and I wasn't going to miss Happy Days. So I quit the Cub Scouts. So I don't think 40 years is that big of a span to remember. And I did. That's a true story. <laughs> I'm not impressed about it now, but I did. And the fact is, my parents let me, which is even more amazing than anything else. But John is saying, listen, I was there, and he came, and he did what the Messiah was said to do, and he revealed to us not only himself, but God. Then, the Apostle Paul reminds us of the prophecies. Paul goes back many times and references Old Testament texts. He's trying to show us that this wasn't just manipulated by a couple of fishermen who wanted to tell a great story. He said, no, listen to the promises. And there's a debate right now, and I, don't wanna, I just want to venture into this kind of walk away. There's a debate about the validity, the actual, uh, the actual validity of Genesis 1 through 11, especially Genesis 1 through 3, the creation account. And there are people saying, well, it's a figurative story, or it's a literal story, or it's a combination of both. And here's all I want to say about that. Jesus, Peter, and Paul all quoted Genesis 1 through 3. They had no question about its power. So in a world today that says, I don't need those, you didn't, but Jesus did. It's the same people who say they don't believe in hell. Jesus did. There are people today, believe it or not, Christian people who are saying they don't believe there's a real heaven. Jesus did. Or he lied. I go to prepare a place for you? Was he lying? Was that figurative language? So what I want you to understand about Paul is, Paul believed that the prophecies validated Jesus. Whether, and I said it last week, whether Paul was in the room when Jesus was here, whether Paul was a Pharisee that was in the crowd, the Sanhedrin, we talked about it last week, or whether he wasn't, take it or leave it. Paul said, the reason I believe in the Christ is the prophecies told me a long time ago a Messiah would come, and this guy did every one of them. Hundreds, remember, not three. Hundreds of prophecies. Three, Paul implores us to remember that Christ never stopped being God. 
And that passage, Philippians 2, 6 through 11, I shared recently from stage that I looked back and over the last two years we've referenced this passage 37 times in sermons, make it 38. Philippians 2 is a powerful passage for us to remember. That he did not give up being God to come here. He gave up many things of power to put himself in submission as a man. But he was God. And Paul goes to great length to embed that in our minds and hearts. And even in Colossians. He is the image of the invisible God. one fifteen and 17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Several phrases I want to talk about and then I'll let you out. First phrase. The image of the invisible God. In other words, he is the visible expression of the invisible God. Do you want to know what God is like? Then open your Bibles and read what Jesus is like. Take Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Read every passage. What does it tell you about him? Not what he did. About him. Because I want you to connect it this way. Paul says he's the, in, in, the image of the invisible God. And we're told in Genesis we were made in the what of God? Wow. So there's a triad to this. There's the fact that God made us in his image, so we hold on to this thing called the imagio Dei, the image of God in us, the soul. We have choice. No, no other created thing has choice or soul. Okay? Now people ask jokingly to, all the time because they know my love for cats, you know, will pets be in heaven? Pets don't have souls. That doesn't mean they won't be in heaven. But there won't be like the good animals and the bad animals. They won't be separated that way. Because they don't have souls, they're not condemned. But because we're made in the image of God, we have souls, which gives us freedom of choice. It gives us the, us the ability to love unconditionally. It's beautiful. That's the first extension of this argument. Then it says that Jesus, the foundational, is that Jesus was the image of the invisible God. So when you look at you're made in the image of God and Jesus came in the image of God, then the connection between us and Jesus is not as hard as we make it. So if you say, well, it's just the way I'm made, I lose my temper, I'm short, I have a short fuse. Is that permission to stay that way? Or is the God who can calm the sea, can he calm your nature? The piece for us is to go from the image of God in us to connecting to the image of God in Jesus so that God is revealing himself through Christ. That's what Paul means when he says he's the image of it. So if you want to know how does God feel about you, ask yourself the question, how does Jesus feel about you? Well, how would I know how Jesus feels about me? Open the book, read the stories. Are you a leper? Are you a prostitute? Are you someone forgotten and ignored? Are you someone sick and hurting? Are you spiritually dead? What did Jesus do for people like that? That's what God wants to do for you. Now, when we turn God into this tyrant who can't hardly stand us because we're so filthy, I ask you, did Jesus ever demonstrate that attitude toward any individual? Nope. So don't let God be taken from you by false teaching. So, second, the firstborn over creation. Uh-oh, here's this place. We had a discussion at Christmas time. 
My dad will turn 80 in May, and we were giving him a hassle about that, just total hassle. So my dad says, well, I'm going to be sending letters out at the first of the year, and it's going to contain our will and where everything's hidden, where all the combinations are and everything, and we started laughing. And we looked at my brother Steve, and we said, ha sucker, because Steve's the oldest. And my dad says, well, what makes you think that Steve is in charge when I'm gone? And I said, Dad, what makes you think you're going to know what we do when you're gone? I said, I always heard Steve got to do this. Steve got to stay up and watch Red Skelton. I didn't. Steve got to stay up and watch this show. I didn't. Why? Because he's the oldest, and sometimes the oldest just catches the break. Well, now, sucker, you're paying for that. He's the firstborn of Dale and Marilyn. We're going to hold him responsible. My brother Steve wants no interest. I know who's going to do it. One of the two bossy ones of us, and I'm one of them. My dad said, Mark, here's all the information. If something happens to me, here's what I want you to do for your mom. If something happens to your mom, I'll be here. But if I'm gone, here's what I want done. God did the same thing to his firstborn. Here's the tasks I'm going to give you. And I won't ask any of the other brothers or sisters to do this. That's a powerful statement, isn't it? He is the firstborn over creation. He has rights and privileges the rest of us don't. He gets to stay up and watch Red Skelton. I had to go to bed. And if you don't know who Red Skelton is, go on YouTube. It's a funny show. Still is. Still is. And lastly, for by him all things were created. You want to know who the we is in Genesis? Let us make man in our image. It doesn't say God created the earth. He, Paul says here, no, it was Jesus that did the creation. The Holy Spirit moved over the creation. God willed it into being. So you can't find the word Trinity in the scriptures and we wonder where it's all made up. If you read in between the lines and you see what's being said, when you compare what all the Bible says about creation, you begin to see, yeah, three separate, but one pretty powerful, even tough to imagine. And then the last point I make in our notes for tonight is the Bible finds its direction and focus on one person. You want to know what God's like? Look at Jesus. You want to know what you should be, how God feels about you? Look at the way Jesus felt about you. Paul uses it. Peter uses it. John uses it. The other authors of the New Testament. Jesus came to be the example, firstborn over all creation. He was the one who put this all together. It'll work out exactly the way he says it will. Any questions or comments? I know it's a big room, and anytime you ask this, there's somebody who asks a question, you all hate them, right? We could get out early. All right, up front here are next week's notes. If you really want to look at them, have them. Otherwise, they'll be here next week. When you come in the back, there'll be tables in the back like we've done in the past. You can pick up one of the outlines for week three. If you miss a week, look me up on the uh, webpage, and I'll send you my notes. All right, let me have a word of prayer, and then we're out of here. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for sending your firstborn to do work none of the rest of us could have gotten done a work that killed him, that stripped him of his dignity and took away his pride and exposed him to the sinful, harsh realities of Satan's efforts to stop him. But he sustained. He loved and he led and he taught and he served and he gave and he provided a perfect way. God, we are a blessed people. Oh, how he has changed our lives. So for Jesus, we're grateful. God, as we open your word, would you reveal through your spirit the Jesus that you sent to us, that we might love him more and grow more. I pray in Jesus' name. 
Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.